Okay, talk about Hebrews to me again to Hebrews chapter three this morning. Hebrews chapter three. Some of you are old enough to remember when Marlboro cigarettes came out, and uh, when they did, they had a. At first, they were advertising to uh, women. They they thought Marlboro cigarettes attract sophisticated women, and um, it didn't work. They were only getting less than one percent of uh, the market. And so they did a market survey, a study, and they discovered that uh, men smoked because it, they thought it made them look more masculine, and women smoked because they, they thought it was attractive to men. And just aside here, there's nothing I like better. It attracts me more to a woman than see smoke coming out of their nose holes. You know, just, there's just nothing better than that, but um, that's just me, you know. Anyway, uh, so they started marketing their cigarettes to, to men, masculine men. So they started showing cowboys that their faces look like saddlebags anyway. So they're out there uh, with uh, these cigarettes. And so that, that's the kind of man that they were wanting to get, a masculine man. If you smoke Marlboros, you're, you're going to be that, the, 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 the Marlboro man, you know. And, and they, they ended their commercials by saying, come to Marlboro country. Uh, it's a wonderful uh, deception that they were doing there. Uh, the Marlboro com- uh, country, country is basically a cemetery, and the Marlboro man has probably got cancer of the lungs. Uh, but they sold their, their campaign worked, and they almost immediately grew, for, grew 400% in the sales of their products, and who knows what it is today. Uh, most, almost all advertisement today is based upon deception. The idea is that if we can convince you emotionally or experientially to do something, to buy something, to go after something, then you will, you will bite on that and you will go for that uh, without thinking. And so they're bypassing the mind and going straight to the emotions and to the experiences. And they, by doing that, they're able to, to sell their products. In one of Tozer's books, Knowledge of the Holy, he quotes somebody as saying this, as nothing is easier than to think, so nothing is more difficult than to think well. And I think he's absolutely right. Some have called for the church and the church growth movement over the last 30 or 40 years. Some have said we need to learn something as a church about uh, drawing people to church and, and to the Lord. Let's sell Jesus like we sell cigarettes or our coffee or whatever else we want to sell. Let's, let's bypass the mind and go straight for the emotions because that will draw people in and you'll get them to come to your church. And often that works in the short run. But in the long run, we have to remember we're not selling a product. We're, we're proclaiming Jesus Christ and his truth. And Christianity is different than any other religion in the world. Christianity goes straight for the mind. We're renewed by our, the, 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 we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. It is a doctrinal faith, unlike any other religion basically in the world. We are not against emotions. Scripture never teaches that. We're not against experiences. We love those things. But they all come from the, from the truth that we have thought about and contemplated, and the emotions come from that. In our singing today, we had some, some very enthusiastic singing. I really enjoyed that. But it should come from what we were singing, not because the tunes were cool, but because of the truth of what we were singing. That's Christianity. That's what the Word of God teaches. So when we come to the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, he's going to call on his readers to become mature. This is one of the major themes of the book, maturity. They're coming mature, becoming mature by 
considering. He says, therefore, holy brothers, partaker of every heavenly calling, consider. And there's our key word today, consider. It means to contemplate. It means to think. It means to ponder. It means to be serious about what we're thinking about. Not be taken in by other things, but to truly consider something. What are we to consider? What is he calling us to consider? Well, first, he's calling us to consider Jesus Christ. He says, the holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and the high priest of our confession. Notice the first word of, this, of the chapter is therefore. Uh, these therefores are peppered all the way throughout the book. As a matter of fact, at the beginning of every chapter in the book of Hebrews, there is a connecting word like therefore, uh, if, if not, therefore, something very similar in every chapter except, of course, the first and the last. We're being told here that this is one gigantic argument. From the beginning to the end, he has one major point, one major argument. And that makes the book of Hebrews both wonderful, unique, and complex. It is perhaps the most complex, intense book of all the scriptures. It's a wonderful study, but it has to be kept constantly in context. Every passage, every verse that you see in the book has to go back to the major theme of the book, or you get lost and go wrong direction. And so, therefore, is here. The first two chapters, he has taught us about the superiority, the supremacy of Jesus Christ over all things, but especially over angels. Those first two chapters in particular. Angels are wonderful. They're, they're splendor. They're, they're full of splendor. They're powerful. They're magnificent. But angels uh, are nothing compared to Jesus. When it comes to Jesus, the angels take a major step backwards. They're not even in the same league with Jesus Christ. His superiority is taught about here. And not only are they servants of Christ, but they're servants of us. In chapter 1, verse 14, they are sent out to serve God's people, even those that are not yet saved. He, they're sent out to serve such people. Now, in chapter 3, it's time for him to, the, our author, to move on to consider Jesus differently. We're going to take a good look at Jesus here. And now we're going to look at Moses. Jesus is superior over Moses. The original uh, readers needed to be needed to consider Jesus for this reason. They were backing away from Jesus. They had they had started out well. We see that throughout the book, but they had grown cold many of them. Uh, they were they were moving backwards, not forward. They were not maturing, they were becoming more and more immature as time passed. They, they, were, they were moving in a direction that was very disturbing. They were going back to their, their Judaism, their traditions, their histories, their rituals. In the process, they were minimizing Jesus on a very regular basis. As we find in, Hebrew, in Revelation chapter 2, concerning the church of Ephesus, they had left their first love. And they were moving back to things that were not comparable to Jesus Christ. They had lost their enthusiasm, enthusiasm for Christ. They had lost their passion for the truth of God's Word. They had lost something along the road in their Christian experience. Their faith had grown cold. They were starting to drift. What should they do? Now, here's a better question for you. What should you do? If you're on that road backwards, 
If you started out well or you had times in the past where you were really trucking for the Lord and going forward for Him, but those days are in your past and you're now kind of apathetic, kind of cold, perhaps going backwards in your spiritual life, the things that used to thrill you about Jesus are ho-hum now. The enthusiasm you once had about being involved in a local church is, yeah, who cares, I'll, I'll show up when it's convenient. Uh, the, your, your hunger for the Word of God that you once had and you had your Bible all marked up, you've lost that and you don't do that anymore. If that is you, this passage of Scripture speaks directly at your heart today because what should you do if that's your condition? Sometimes we complicate life too much. Sometimes we complicate the Christian life too much. Our, our author of Hebrews is going to take us to simplicity here. He's going to tell us to do something very simple. He's going to tell us to focus on Jesus Christ. Consider Jesus. And for those that listen to our, our wonderful day in the Lord broadcast, and I know everybody does, uh, if you do that, you're going to find that I'm starting a new series this week based upon, out of this verse of Scripture, Consider Jesus. And we're going to spend several weeks looking at Jesus and considering Jesus. There's so much. But the author of Hebrews gives us two particular things to consider today. Number one, he is our apostle. And this is the only time in the New Testament when Jesus Christ is called an apostle. Hebrews is so unique, so different than anything else in the Bible in many ways. The only time he's called an apostle. An apostle is a sent one. Someone sent out with a message and an, an ambassador for someone else. In this case, Jesus Christ is the ambassador for the Father. He came, chapter 1, verse 2, to be the voice of God. Look at verse 2 of chapter 1. In these last days he has spoken to us in his Son. He came to give a message from the Father. And in chapter 2, verse 3, we find that how can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation after it was first spoken through the Lord? He has come with the word from God. He was sent because God loved us. For God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son. And he came willingly. And he came with a message. And he came with a, with a mission. The message was how to be right with God. The mission was that he would die in our place in order that we could be right with God as he took our sin upon himself and calls for it and give, offers to give us the gift by faith alone of eternal life. The second thing we should consider about Jesus is that he is our high priest of our confession. Only Hebrews, once again, only Hebrews identifies Jesus as a high priest, our high priest. Seventeen times in the book of Hebrews, high priest is mentioned. Eleven of those times is a direct reference to Jesus himself. He is our high priest. In Latin, the, high, the word high priest or, or priest means a bridge builder. Jesus came to build a bridge between us and the Father. He came to, to be the bridge between us and the Father. In order, a priest in the Old Testament had to know two things. He had to know God and he had to know people. Jesus came and experienced life, according to chapter 2 of this book, that he might Identify with us as our high priest. Jesus has always been God, and he came from heaven as God's representatives to declare to us and reveal to us what God is like. 
And so Jesus is our high priest in those ways. Without Jesus, there is no relationship possible with God. For God cannot ignore sin, and Jesus, and, and we cannot approach his holiness. Something had to be done about that. God must reject us due to our sinfulness unless there is a priest, a high priest, one who is capable of taking away our sins and giving us the righteousness of God. We cannot approach God without that righteousness. And we cannot know the path to God unless Jesus Christ himself, our high priest, builds that bridge over which we can cross. So Jesus is our apostle to deliver us the word from God. He is sent with a message and a mission. And Jesus Christ is our high priest so that we can, he, he can take us before the Father and we can know him. This is a, a cycle or a, a circle. Both are needed, the apostleship and the high priest. When I was a kid, I had one of these uh, racing sets, you know, those little car sets you put in the living room, and you race the cars around the, around the loop. And my, my car always flew off the end anyway, but you know how those were. But I found that my, my set wouldn't work at all if there was any disconnection in the, in the, in the track. If a car wouldn't run, I, I knew there was a break in the connection, so I had to put the connection back together so the car could run and run off the end of the track. Connection was needed. And our connection to God is needed and made possible only through Jesus Christ. He completes the loop, the loop that only He can complete. So we're called to consider, we're called to ponder, we're called to think about the person of Jesus and His ministries to us. We are to apply these things to our minds. We are to discipline ourselves to think about these things. And you're saying, you might be saying, well, you know, that's, a, that's pretty heavy stuff right there. I, I'm not sure I'm following everything you're saying there. Good. Excellent. Exactly where I wanted you to be. See, I want you to consider. He didn't say, think about it for 30 seconds. He said, ponder. Consider. Think. Give consideration to the facts of who Jesus Christ is. It's the most important thing we can ever think about. Now, if you're going to do that, let me suggest some things that you can do to become a, a one who considers Jesus Christ. Because, you know, if you're just thinking of Christ in a, in a mystical form or nebulous form, you won't get very far. So what should you do to really consider Jesus Christ? Let me suggest that it requires four things. Number one, it, it requires desire. You have to want to. I'm going to look at two texts with you, one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament. Go back to Psalms for a moment, 27.4, and a Psalm of David, 27.4. Now we know this is an Old Testament context. In the Old Testament, the presence of God was localized in the temple or the tabernacle, and that is what uh, David is referencing. But I want you to note his desire the heart, his heart. Look at the words in verse 4. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. What did David want more than anything else? To behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate on the things of God. Wow. Wow. That's what he wanted. 
Let's go to the New Testament text, Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Now, I think if Paul had a life verse, this might be it. You know, if you ask people sometimes, what's your favorite verse of Scripture? That's awful hard to come up with sometimes, and I'm sure Paul had many. But if chapter 3 of Philippians, verse 10, might have been his, I don't know. He says this, here's my passion, here's my desire, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. What did Paul want more than anything else? That I may know him. That I may be in fellowship with him, his life, even his sufferings, conformed to his death, so that everything else in life is nothing compared to him. That's my life verse, he says. Or at least I think he might say. It's often been my life verse, that I may know him. It begins, my friends, with desire. It begins with what we want to do. For several years now, I've had as one of my goals to clean out the garage. I don't mean straighten things. I mean take everything out of the garage, clean out all the dirt, clean out all the cobwebs, rearrange all the tools my boys have yet to steal, and, and make it beautiful, what for what. It, it, I have been thinking about this for years, and it only take me about two hours, and Marsha and I would work together. We'd probably be done in a couple of hours. And uh, if it, somebody's laughing at that. that. Now, okay, with Marsha, it'd be four hours, because she's going to get rid of all my stuff. But nevertheless, I could get it done. Why don't I clean out my garage? I got one reason. I don't want to. I don't want to. Amen. All right. I, uh, I would rather read a thousand-page book on the atonement of Christ that would take me months than to clean out that garage. I just don't want to. I'm going to do it this week. <laughs> we'll see. Why don't we do things that we say we want to do? Because we really don't want to. Do you really want to know Christ? Do you really want to ponder Christ? Do you really want to consider Christ? Do you really want to grow in Christ? You have to have the desire to do so. Call on God to give you that desire. Secondly, we need to concentrate. You're in Philippians, so go over two pages to Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. You're going to have to concentrate, and this is a hard one today. These wonderful verses in Colossians 3, 1 and 2. These might be my life verses. I don't know. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ... Keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. You're going to have to concentrate, set your mind on the things that are above. My friends, this isn't easy today. It's becoming harder. Our minds have been trained in recent years to not be able to think very long. Matter of fact, educators have come up with a new word for a lot of their students. They say that their students have grasshopper minds. They can't hold still very long. Any of you teachers are smiling at me right now. They can't, they can't think for very long because they have these grasshopper minds. This last week, uh, there was a cricket over here near the office that I decided I was going to kill. We got, by the way, we have more crickets come to church than sometimes Christians. So, uh, but I, I was going to step on this, uh, grasshopper, this uh, uh, cricket, but he didn't want to die. Crazy thing. I chased him all over the place and let him go. He might be under your chair right now. I don't know. He popped around. I couldn't, I couldn't slow him down. I couldn't stop him. 
That's the way our minds are working today. Just popping around from thought to thought to thought to thought. Grasshopper minds. Makes it very hard for us because we're not used to it anymore. Matter of fact, in 1994, a great thinker by the name, a Christian thinker by the name of Oz Guinness wrote a book called Fit Bodies and Fat Minds. And he, at that time, was thinking about the, the fitness craze at the time, people, everybody getting in shape. I don't think that worked as well as he thought it would either. But the fit minds and fat, or fat minds and fit bodies, I don't know. He, he, he didn't think we were thinking very well. Our ability to concentrate has consistently gotten worse because of the TV, the sound bites, the music videos, and all the millions of things in life that require about 30 seconds to think about. Numerous studies have been done in recent times showing that our ability to concentrate is being changed, listen to this, by the very medium that we use today. Marianne Wolf wrote a very powerful book called Reader Come Home, which documents that information taken online through our internet sources and so forth is literally physically rewiring our brains so that we don't think the way that we used to. We don't think carefully. We don't think critically. And if we're going to grow in our ability to concentrate on Christ, something's going to have to be reversed there. We're going to have to take steps and do things and make efforts to learn how to concentrate once again. And I would suggest one of the ways you do that is turn off your computer and open a book. Turn off your computer and open your Bible. Sit down carefully and consider Jesus Christ and His truth. We're back to Hebrews now. Here's a third requirement. Go back to chapter 12, verse 1. Discipline. That dirty word, discipline. Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, he says, another therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of faith. Discipline. To decide that we are going to do it. And to discipline ourselves to do so. You see, reflection doesn't happen in a glance. Our interstate system that was built back in the 50s, ongoing, is a wonderful thing if you want to get to someplace in a hurry. You jump on the interstate and you go as fast as you can go and you get somewhere. But if you want to see something, you have to go off the interstate. If you want to go to the towns, if you want to buy something, if you want to look at the countryside, you have to get off the interstate. You might consider, for example, uh, in this regard of discipline, you might consider not using your ear, ear, earbuds when you're walking or riding your bike or when you're, or you're picnicking or fishing. You might consider leaving your phone. This is horrors of horrors, I'm sorry. Leaving your cell phone in another room where you can't hear it for 30 minutes so that you can concentrate on Jesus Christ and his word because I'll guarantee you you'll get a phone call right in the middle of the best time that you're having with Christ because the devil does not want you to hear and think about Jesus Christ. You might do something like that. You know, it's been said you can't be holy in a hurry. 
And that's absolutely right. Here's one more thing. Go back to chapter 5 of Hebrews as we drift back to our text. Chapter 5, verse 14. One more requirement. Repetitive action or training. The training of our minds. In verse 14, he says, But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Training happens from repetitive actions. You do something over and over and over until it becomes second nature. So that we do it automatically. The retraining of our minds. Our minds are not naturally trained to concentrate on Jesus, on His truth, on His Word. And He was getting on these people because they had allowed their minds to become flabby. And because of that, they no longer could, could contemplate and understand the things of God. And they weren't growing. That's, a, that's the context here. They weren't, gro- they weren't maturing because of that. He says it's time to have retrained minds once again. So we're to consider Jesus, going back to chapter 3. But now, secondly, we need to consider Moses in the light of Jesus. He says, he goes on, verse 2, he says, He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses was in all of his house. Now, no sooner are we told to consider Jesus that we're now told to consider Moses, which we're a little bit surprised by. But, you know, to us that might not matter as much, but to the Jews, that was different. Moses to the Jews was the most important person of the Old Testament. Matter of fact, some had elevated him above angels. That's how, how important they saw Moses. And one of the issues that these people here were facing was that, yes, they had professed Christ, but they saw Moses as superior even to Jesus. And so they were going back to what they felt was superior to a life they once had in following Moses. And leaving behind Jesus, or at least leaving Jesus as secondary. See, what they needed to understand, what they needed to consider, was that Moses had given them the law, but Jesus had fulfilled the law. They needed to consider that they had lived their whole life under the law, but Jesus had come to free them from the law. They needed to consider that Moses gave them a sacrificial system, but Christ had been the final and complete sacrifice. So no more sacrifices are necessary. They needed to understand that they would misunderstood the law and even brought it to a place of, of how to be saved by keeping the law in some cases. And they needed to understand that Jesus had brought true salvation and the law only and the sacrifices only pointed to Jesus. They were shadows. And he was the substance as, they'll tell, as it will be told in chapter 10 verse 1. So it's time to leave behind, to move on from Moses, to move on to Jesus. Some of these Jewish leaders weren't so sure about that. And so they were abandoning Jesus and going back to Moses. And therefore he invites us to consider Moses. And as as we do so, we see a comparison and we see a couple contrasts between Moses and Jesus. In verse verse 2, both were faithful. Moses was faithful. He doesn't come out bashing Moses. He's very tactful. He was faithful who appointed him as Moses was in his house. Moses was faithful. The Lord called him to a task. He wasn't perfect. He flubbed up on occasion. But he was faithful to his Lord and to the people. And that is appreciated here. That is mentioned here. Faithfulness. Of all the characteristics of the Christian life, faithfulness is way up on the list. Of the fruit of the Spirit, faithfulness is one of the great ones, one of the, one of the nine facets 
of the fruit of the Spirit. Thomas Kelly was a hymn writer back in the 1800s. We sang one of his songs today. That that was on purpose. Uh, It's still being sung in many churches today and should still be. Praise the Savior, ye who know him. I hope you were thinking about the words when we sang it. Who can tell how much we owe him? Gladly let us render to him all we are and have. Jesus is the name that charms us. He for conflict fits and arms us. No, nothing moves and nothing harms us while we trust in him. And then my favorite verse, if not for any other reason that it completely blows my mind every time I sing it. And you sang it today and you're probably scratching your head, especially if you're not used to it. Saying, what in the world? Then we shall be where we would be. Then we shall be what we should be. Things that are not, are not now nor could be soon will be our own. Huh? Got to think about that a little bit. He's right on target. Thomas Kelly wrote his first book of hymns that went out in 1804. It was called Hymns on Various Passages of Scripture. In that hymn book, there was 96 hymns that he had written. And most of the time back in those days, they wrote hymns to be sung in church. And so like we sang a couple of new songs today, often these pastors and leaders would write hymns for that Sunday. So that's why a lot of them are not particularly well known today, but many of them are quite good. But in 1853, a little over 50 years later, he, he, writ, he completed his 10th edition of that book. And in that edition, he had 765 hymns. So a lot more hymns. But he said in the preface of that 10th edition, he wrote these words. It will be perceived by those who have read these hymns that though there is an interval of between the first and the last of nearly 50 years, both speak of the same great truths in the same way. In the course of that long time, the author has seen much and heard much, but nothing has made the least change of his mind. As to the grand truths of the gospel, what, what uh, uh, pacified the conscience then does so now, what gives hope then does so now. And what he's saying is, I have, I've served the Lord, I've wrote these hymns, I've, I've walked with him for 50 years, and the hymns I wrote 50 years ago have the same truths that they do now. That's faithfulness, folks. Not this drifting stuff we see all over Christianity today where, where somebody asks me, well, what do you think about him? Well, which one are you th- talking about? The guy 30 years ago the guy now? This drifting of truth, of, of ideas. The tr- scriptures never change. If they were true 50 years ago, they're true now. If they're true 2,000 years ago, they're true now. That's faithfulness. Moses was honored because he was faithful. In his entire house, it says. Of course, ultimately, his faithfulness was from God. Now, now look at two contrasts between Moses and Jesus. Jesus is superior in two ways. First of all, Jesus is the builder, and Moses is just part of the house. Verse 3, he says, For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by so much more, much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. When we see a beautiful house a beautiful building, a beautiful structure. We might marvel in that and glory in that and say, wow, how lovely that is. But somebody had to design that. And somebody had to build that. That took skill. 
And the builder and the designer is more worthy of praise than the house. We have right here in Springfield one of the, one of the uh, Frank Lloyd Wright houses. He's considered by many the greatest, greatest architect uh, America ever, has ever had. And we have a house in town. It's called the Dana Thomas House by, by most people. But when you look at that house, it's very interesting. If you haven't been there, you ought to go there. But it, it gets its glory, it gets its, its beauty and, and honor by the fact that, Dana, that the Dana Thomas house was architect and designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. The house that Moses was over was wonderful. The house of Israel. But God designed the house. God created the house, not Moses. Moses was a wonderful piece of work, but he did not make himself. Israel was a wonderful nation, but they did not make themselves. Jesus is the architect and the designer. Second contrast, Moses was a servant, but Jesus is a son. Verse 5, he says, Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house. The word used here for servant is a unique word. Only time in all the New Testament that it's found is right here. It's a word that does not mean slave. So if you have a legacy standard Bible, is that what you read from today, Mike? No? Yeah. Uh, if you had a legacy standard Bible, you'll notice whenever there's servant in most translations, they translate it slave, doulos, slave. Not here. Because that is not the word doulos. It's a unique word. It doesn't mean slave. It means a, a person who still is a servant, but they're the highest of the highest of the servants. Like a squire to, to a rich person. Moses was that person because he was faithful. In the last six chapters of Exodus, it tells us that on 22 occasions that Moses was faithful to God. Wouldn't that be great to be said of you? that you are faithful to God on 22 occasions. D.L. Moody said the measure of a Christian is not how many servants he has, but how many people he serves. Another commentator says, God does not so much need people to do extraordinary things as he needs people to do ordinary things and extraordinarily well. And then I love this. John Wesley, on his monument at the Abbey in England, has these words. And I want you to know as I, as I read them, John Wesley is considered by most church historians as one of the three big names since the, since the Protestant Reformation. Calvin, Luther, and John Wesley. Certainly used mightily of God. On his monument are these words. God buries his workmen, but carries on his work. That says a lot. John Wesley's gone. All the great names are gone, including Moses. But God carries on his work because Jesus is greater than Moses and Jesus is greater than any other workman. Moses was a great servant, an honorable servant, a faithful servant. Jesus was the son. Moses' words and life pointed to the future coming of Christ and his ministry, but he was only a shadow of that which was to come and the good things in Christ. Even the best of the best are mere servants when it comes to Jesus. Now there's one more thing we want to consider before we're done today. We've considered Jesus, 
There could be no higher thing to consider, I would suggest to you, than Jesus. I hope you leave today saying, I want to do that. I'm going to open up the Word. I'm going to consider Jesus. I'm going to think about Jesus. I'll start with five minutes a day contemplating Jesus. And I'll learn about Him more and more. And we've, we've considered Moses in relationship to Jesus. And we've seen the superiority of Jesus. One more thing to consider, and that's ourselves. At the end of verse 6, he says this. He says, Whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and boast of our hope firm until the end. Jesus has been declared faithful over his house. That household is the believers here, if you look at it closely. And that's a glorious thing. The supremacy and the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. But now the author immediately turns around. Here's a picture as I see it. It's like he's worshiping God. He's worshiping Jesus. His attention is flowing to Jesus. And it's like he turns around and he looks now at his congregation. And he's looking at the people. And he says this. The household of God is the people of God. Let me ask you a question, my friends. Are you in the house? Are you in that house? Are you part of that house? And the people might get a little defensive. You know, when you ask somebody, are you saved? Some people get real defensive. I've had people get really mad at me who say, of course I'm saved. Who are you? Maybe they're getting, maybe they're getting bent out of shape here. Why, why do you ask they might say, why, would you ask, why, do, why don't you think maybe we're, maybe we're not saved? Why would you even ask that question? Because he says, those who belong to Jesus' house do not walk out on him. Let me say it another way. If you belong to the household of God, you will never run away from home. Nowhere in the New Testament, more than Hebrews, do we find such repeated insistence on this very fact. That if you really belong to Him, then the test of reality, if you think you belong to Him, the test of reality is you don't run out on Him. You don't abandon Him. You don't walk away from Him. You will persevere because... You're part of the house. Now keep in mind as I say that, and I'll, I'll back off and say a little more about that, but keep in mind as we're saying this, he's writing to people that he considers believers. Chapter what, 3, verse 1, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. He's considering his audience Christians, at least the majority of them. But as we'll see over and over and over and over throughout this book, like any congregation, there are some in that congregation that are not genuine believers. And he's calling on them to take a really good look at their lives. Because some were backtracking. Some seemingly were about to leave the house to walk away. And if they did, it, it wasn't that they lost their salvation. Because scripture is abundantly clear if you know Christ. You can never lose your salvation, not because of any goodness in you, but because he's promised 
that his gifts and callings will never be revoked. If you're saved, nothing can take that away. So he's not talking about that, but he's offering a test of whether or not you are saved. And he's saying to them, if you're really saved, you're going to stay in the house. You'll never fall away. Now, I want to say this, because whenever I talk about this, whenever, and we'll be talking about it a lot going through Hebrews, whenever we go through this, there's people, some people get pretty antsy, and they look at their lives, and they question their salvation when they shouldn't. So I'm not here to question, have anyone question their salvation when they shouldn't. He's not talking about the normal ups and downs of the Christian life. We all have those. We're fickle people. We're emotional people. There's, there's ups and downs throughout our life, some people more than others, but we all have those. There are times in our lives when we're not, we're, you know, we're, we're just not doing all that well. We're kind of apathetic and we're just kind of, kind of dead in the water. And there are seasons, sadly, and some of you have experienced those. Maybe you're experiencing one now. There are seasons when it just doesn't seem to be going right direction for you spiritually. And you're just dead in the water. Well, what should you do in those seasons? If you truly know Christ as your Savior by faith alone, if you're truly trusting in Him, what you should do is consider Jesus. What you've lost along the way, I will guarantee you every time, is you stop considering Jesus. You stop thinking about Jesus. You stop thinking about His Word. You stop thinking about the, the way you can serve Him. You stop thinking about the basics of the Christian life every time that would be the case. So what should you do? Consider Jesus. Get back in there. Start thinking of him. Start spending time with him daily, regularly. Things will change. So we're not talking about the ups and downs. We're talking about someone who now has abandoned Jesus, who has walked away from Jesus. True believer, he is saying, will never do that. And that is because it's in our nature. It's in our nature to stay in the house. It's in our nature to stay in the home because it is home to us. There's a pull. There's a call that can never be erased, even in our darkest hours, to take us back to him. I think one of the most beautiful stories in Scripture, and, people, and we turn to it for a number of reasons, that fits this very well is the story of the prodigal son. You remember? The prodigal son thought he was pretty uppity. Uh, he wanted to leave home. Uh, his home life wasn't doing it for him. He didn't want to be with his family. He wanted daddy to give him a third of his, the inheritance, which was a third of the, of the household, so he'd go off and do what he wanted to do. And so the father did that. By the way, nobody would have done that in New Testament times, but this is a story, a parable. And so he gives his son all this money and whatever, and he goes off and he lives horrible life. Uh, he has fun and parties his heart out until it's all gone, and he ruins himself. He discovers nobody cares for him, actually, because when it, once his money's gone. He's in, truly in the gutter of life. Eating with the pigs, which no Jew would have done normally. And one day, and here's, a, here's the verse, go back and look at it, consider Jesus. Go back and look at Luke chapter 15, verse 17, and here are the pivotal words. But when he had come to his senses, 
You see, anyone who can, would consider walking out on Jesus has lost their mind. But when we come to our senses, we realize there's nothing more wonderful, more precious than Jesus Christ. And when he had come to his senses, what did he do? He went home. He didn't know how he would be received. After all, he had ruined himself and disgraced his father's name and wasted all that money. How would he be received? He didn't think it would be very well. But what did he find? A father with open arms taking his son back home. Joy. His dad threw him a party. And in the same context, in the two parables just prior to this one, the angels also threw him a party. It says the angels rejoice in heaven over one sinner who repents. On that day, the Father threw him a party. Heaven threw him the party. The whole world was rejoicing because a sinner had come home. And my friends, let me say two applications to you. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, or you're not absolutely certain that you are a Christian, that you know Christ as your Savior by faith alone, I call on you, I urge you to come to your senses. Nothing else matters but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Come to Him today. And if you're a Christian and you're dead in the water, you're backtracking, you're going the wrong way, I plead with you today to come to your senses. Consider Jesus. Come home. Come home. You'll be welcomed at the open arms by the Father. The angels in heavens will rejoice. God's people will rejoice. And you'll walk with him as you should. Consider Jesus. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these relatively simple admonishments to consider you, consider your son. What a difference that would make in our lives, Lord, if we would. And I pray we will. I pray everyone that leaves today says, I will follow what the scriptures teach here. That if, I, if I'm backtracking away from the Lord, it's because I'm not doing what scripture tells me to do. And Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, may we choose to do so. And I thank you, Lord, of the unbelievers here that may not know you as Savior. May this be the day that they come to their senses and come back, come to you and enter your house. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.